Turn with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 10. 2 Corinthians chapter 10. This is the time of the year where our preaching schedule gets a little bit choppy. So just so you know what's coming up, I will resume our time in 1 Timothy 2 on the godly women of the church after Resurrection Sunday, and we'll finish that series on Mother's Day. So that worked out pretty well. But today I need to kind of interrupt myself and have us have a little shepherding time. Dr. Todd Brenneman is a professor of church history, outstanding writer. And he wrote a book a few years ago called Homespun Gospel, The Triumph of Sentimentality in Contemporary American Evangelicalism. And his basic argument is that high-profile preachers and authors have often fooled much of the evangelical world much of the church, frankly, into believing a less-than-biblical God, one that exists primarily for me and is described in parameters to give me warm feelings. Brenneman also chronicles several book crazes that have beset the church in the past couple of decades. He writes on The Purpose-Driven Life by Rick Warren, which told us that God exists for me. He writes of Your Best Life Now by Joel Osteen, which again tells us that God exists for me. He writes on pretty much all the books by Max Lucado, which tells us again, God exists for me. Disappointingly, we have in that list The Prayer of Jabez by Bruce Wilkinson, who was an outstanding Bible teacher and then writes this book, which is the worst example of hermeneutics in a hundred years. And I could add also, we've talked about this at our church, Jesus Calling by Sarah Young. What do all these have in common? They've all sold tens of millions of copies and in their day were considered the next big thing in the church. This is what we actually now know about God because somebody wrote a book. And all of them contain terrible error, even to the point of misleading millions into believing a false portrayal of God. What do we call a false portrayal of God? That is an idol. But Brenneman's thesis is that what is deceptive about sentimentalism is that the average everyday believer in the church isn't looking for some sort of deep theological treatise. They're simply looking for encouragement and for help in a life that's very hard, in a time of suffering. And so they they seem to find this help in books like this. Their walk with Christ now is, in their minds, encouraged by the fact that the book or the sermon made them feel good good. And that becomes now the measure of truth. Listen, if spiritual deception were not a major issue, then the Bible wouldn't crescendo to the end on this point. The warnings in the New Testament are are seemingly endless to beware of false teaching, to beware of the the slippery slope of human opinion and philosophical systems disguised as spiritual truth. And if you think, well, I've been walking with the Lord for a few years now, I'm not going to be taken in, that's the whole point of deception warnings is the fact that you can be taken in. And so today I want to talk about spiritual discernment. We'll call this sentiment versus study or maybe sentiment versus the whole counsel of God as found in the scriptures. Now, for me personally, I take a lot of comfort in God, in Paul's admonition to Timothy, in 1 Timothy 4.15, he says, Practice these things, immerse yourself in them, so that all may see your progress. That's exciting to me. That means I'm allowed to grow. I'm allowed to progress. I'm allowed to develop. This is nothing to be ashamed of. There's nothing to elicit a prideful response, to change your view on something because of further study and further growth in the scriptures. That's healthy. And that shows a desire to know God. So let that be today for all of us. That we eagerly desire to be immersed in truth. And that spiritual truth is inspired and perfect in only one form. And that is in the scriptures. Now I'm going to use 2 Corinthians 10 as just sort of a jumping off point. The Apostle Paul is explaining the nature of his ministry. And a big part of his ministry is to defend truth. Look with me at 2 Corinthians 10 verse 5. Probably a familiar verse to you. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ. 
Now, the idea here of taking every thought captive is not in this context talking about simply us being disciplined to think godly thoughts. I need to take my thoughts captive. That's not the idea here. This is not the context of a Christian taking our own thoughts captive. The context is Paul the Apostle taking faulty thoughts captive from others in the minds of his listeners. He's taking prisoners of war, so to speak, and these prisoners are faulty arguments and lofty opinions raised against the knowledge of God. What is, it a, lo- what is a lofty opinion? A lofty opinion is something that sounds so profound, sounds so exalted, so grand, so complex that it must be true. If you read something, if you hear something and it sounds so ethereal and you say, wow, that guy's a genius because I don't have a clue what he's talking about. That's a lofty opinion. And in fact, Paul's mission to take every thought captive is extended into his description of the duties of elders in the local church. Titus 1 verse 9 This is speaking of an elder. He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. That is the imperative of a church leader, to instruct in sound doctrine and rebuke those who contradict. So my plan this morning is very simple. First, I'd like to highlight some ways for you to be discerning. I want to highlight some ways for you to be discerning. And then second, I want to go to a specific example, which has been the most recent hot commodity in Christian circles. It is really the next Jesus calling, I believe. Now, this is much more involved than just saying, kind of in caveman style, that preacher bad, this preacher good. That book bad, this book good. That's, that's easy. That's not discernment. Because now you're counting on others to do your thinking for you. I, I don't want you to do that. I want you to do your own thinking We talk in Bible Training Institute about listening and reading critically, taking the good, leave the not so good. As our friend Steve Lawson is fond of saying, chew the meat and spit out the bones. We understand that, reading and and listening with discernment. Instead of just making broad statements that this or that source is all good or all bad, we're to be like the Bereans of Acts 17. Paul and Silas are preaching to them. They receive the word with all eagerness, examining the scriptures to see if these things were so. You will never offend me by sending me an email that says, I went and checked every one of your cross-references you mentioned on Sunday just to make sure you were on track. I love that because that's you doing your own study. So let's talk about some ways to be discerning. I'm going to give you six of them. Some ways to be discerning. The first one is expect uninspired sources to be uninspired. Expect uninspired sources to be uninspired. 2 Timothy 3.16, we'll refer to this a couple of times. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. This highlights the doctrine of inspiration, that the scriptures are wholly perfect and inerrant, and therefore they are authoritative. All other sources, therefore, are inherently uninspired. And this shouldn't surprise us at all. Sermons are uninspired, in that the capacity for error is continually present. I live with that burden every single week. And so our goal is to stick closely to sound hermeneutics, sound Bible study methods, make certain that there's a robust examination of Scripture as our guide. Books are uninspired because books are basically written sermons. And the same standard applies to them. Now, preaching is mandated in Scripture, and I'm thankful for that. We need preaching. 2 Timothy 4, 2 tells us to preach, but the primary duty of a pastor is to preach, and to preach what? Preach the word, not preach anything else. But a sermon or a book is still flawed. It's still delivered by a flawed human servant. We just put out a book, and we couldn't even get the page numbers right. That's why a sermon must contain a biblically logical argument. And any opinion must be categorically stated as such. When an uninspired source doesn't stand the scrutiny of further comparison in the scripture, that should not be a surprise whatsoever. That's why we're here to learn. We need to know our theology because theology provides training wheels. It provides boundaries for us to recognize when an uninspired source goes out of bounds. So when you listen or read to an uninspired source, don't be surprised when it's flawed. That's the way it is. We all understand this. So what do we do then? Here's a second way to be discerning. 
Recognize that uninspired sources have varying degrees of usefulness. Recognize that uninspired sources have varying degrees of usefulness. For example, you may have a book or two or three that you've read 20 times because it has so spoken to your soul and reflected accurately what the Word of God says. You may have another one that you stopped after three chapters and it makes a great coaster for your coffee. And that's it. Uninspired sources have varying degrees of usefulness. And they are useful. When Paul was in prison in Rome the second time, he wrote to Timothy in 2 Timothy 4.13 and he asked him to bring a few things. Bring my coat. And he said, and bring my books. He wanted his books. He wanted his scrolls. Paul quotes an uninspired source in Titus 1 verse 12. By the way, that quote now becomes inspired because Paul quoted it into the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Jude quotes an uninspired source, the book of First Enoch in Jude 14. That doesn't mean the whole source is inspired, but by the Holy Spirit, Jude authenticated that that one small portion now becomes part of the inspired text. And so there are useful uninspired sources. Listen, if we didn't believe uninspired sources were useful, we wouldn't have a bookstore out there, right? Seminaries wouldn't make us read thousands and thousands of pages of books. But there are varying degrees of usefulness. And this is primarily based on this simple question. To what degree does the book accurately explain the text of Scripture? To what degree does it it open up what Scripture says? Here's a third way to be discerning. Know that uninspired sources can become a form of idolatry. Know that uninspired sources can become a form of idolatry. 1 John 5.21 says, Little children, keep yourselves from idols. What is an idol? Well, an idol of the heart is something or someone or some concept, maybe a perfect marriage or total financial prosperity. It can be anything. It can even be good things that become so important that you're willing to sin to get it or to keep it. Or maybe it's something you're willing to sin to avoid, that you have an idol of never having a health issue. I'll do anything to, to avoid that. For example, if you will steal or embezzle to avoid tightening your belt financially if necessary, then you stop trusting the Lord and instead made an idol of a certain lifestyle. But it's also possible to make an idol of an uninspired source of information. And how do you know that may have happened? Well, because when somebody like me says, you might want to question this source, your ire is raised. Your anger is brought to the surface because somebody challenged that. And instead of evaluating the content and searching the scriptures, there's an emotional defensiveness. And I don't mind saying this openly because I've been down that road. One of the most popular little books in Christendom over the past decades was a little book called Practicing the Presence of God. Some of you may have read it. You may be going, I think I have that on my shelf. It's written by Nicholas Herman, better known simply as Brother Lawrence. He was a 17th century monk in a secluded French monastery, which I found out later. This book is big in Christian circles. It is today. It's even quoted extensively by the great Bible teacher, James Montgomery Boyce. I got a hold of it many years ago. It was a fascinating read. It's very contemplative. It made me think a lot about the presence of God and to a certain degree it really drew me in and then somebody told me bluntly you know that book is written by a Catholic and is basically a modern form of Gnosticism right oh didn't know that Gnosticism higher knowledge I tell you I remember my first emotional response and it was not righteous and upon reflection my response was not based on being able to defend the content but based on the fact that I felt fooled and tricked and embarrassed Why can an uninspired source become a source of idolatry? Well, that brings us to our fourth way to be discerning. Sentiment is not study. Sentiment is not study. You need to know this. Sentiment is not a Bible study method. How you feel is not a a hermeneutic. Now, this can be positive sentiment or it can be negative sentiment. Let me give you a couple of examples. Positive sentiment. The reason that Brother Lawrence's book was a stumbling block for me years ago is very simple. It was a book that made me feel certain ways. I felt hopeful. I felt excited. Like I had stumbled onto sort of a a spiritual secret of sorts. And we all know the power of emotional association. We associate things with places and times and colors and events. And this can hold true of an uninspired source. 
I have a lot of books on my bookshelf, and I can't remember when I read them. I just know I did. But to this day, I can picture with vividness the desk that I don't own anymore that I used when I was reading the practice of the presence of God, practicing the presence of God. I can picture the time of day. I can picture what I was wearing. I can picture all the furniture in that room. I can picture where the light was coming in the window. I can picture how I felt. I can picture that as if it was yesterday. And that was almost 30 years ago. Why is that? Because it had an emotional impact on me despite the fact it was basically devoid of spiritual truth. That's positive sentiment, but that's not a Bible study method. What about negative sentiment? Well, negative sentiment can block your ability to think critically, block your ability to hear the truth. Many of you were here a few years ago when I preached on divorce and remarriage. And one of the warnings I had to give was to not let emotion rob you of a critical examination of the facts. In fact, I showed you a cartoon in which a preacher says, my topic today is divorce, and he's wearing a suit of armor because he's waiting for all the tomatoes to get thrown. An emotionally charged subject can steal your objectivity and steal your, creative, uh, your critical thinking, rather, before you've had the chance to even consider what the Bible actually says. John said in 3 John verse 4 that he rejoices to find the members of the church walking in the what? The truth. And immediately he warns them of deceivers and he encourages them, abide in the teaching of Christ. Discernment means that emotion and sentiment is not a hermeneutic. It's not a helpful means of discerning truth. Sentiment is not study. There's a fifth way to be discerning. Remember that your thoughts matter to God. Remember that your thoughts matter to God. Psalm 19, verse 14. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Did you catch that? The psalmist is praying, let what I think be pleasing to you. What does this mean? It means that the, cho- the things I choose to, to think about are important to God. And would God have us meditate on questionable opinions or lofty arguments, as Paul says in 2 Corinthians 10? No. Because then we're simply poisoning our own minds when instead we could be meditating on that which we know to be true. Paul said this, very familiar to us, Philippians 4, 8. Finally, brothers, whatever is what? True. Think about these things. This is why Colossians 3.16 says, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. It's a word that means abundantly. Let the lavish wealth of the word of God dwell in your heart. This is why Paul reminds us in Romans 12.2, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your what? Mind. That by testing you may discern what is the will of God. You test everything. Now, it's important that in the process of learning, we wrestle with new truths as we, as we grasp them. The point isn't to stay, though, in a, in a perpetual state of confusion and pass this off as meditation or contemplation. The point is to know God more and more, to be more confident of the truths we do possess. One more way to be discerning. Responsible church leadership examines what has become popular. Responsible church leadership examines what has become popular. Titus 1, 10 and 11, Paul tells Titus, For there are many who are insubordinate, empty talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision party. Let me stop right there. What has become popular in the churches that Paul is dealing with is Jewish teachers coming in and saying, that's fine if you want to come to Christ, but first you need to become a Jew. That has become popular. There are many of them. What does he say to do with them? They must be silenced. Since they are upsetting whole families by teaching for shameful gain what they ought not to teach. Now this is a tough job. It's not my favorite part of being a shepherd. Examining what is popular. There are two extremes to avoid when thinking about keeping an eye on what's popular. One extreme obviously is legalism. On the legalistic side, it's, it'd be easy to just simply say, okay, it's a, it's a sin to read a certain book or listen to a certain preacher. Well, honestly, there are some Christians who make their living critiquing what is questionable and they have to immerse themselves in those materials. I, I couldn't do that, but some do that. Well, rather than keeping a list of no-no books and preachers, that, which is only going to grow, better to teach you to know your Bibles and sound doctrines so you can discern for yourself. So we don't want to go to that extreme. 
you know, you don't have to, you don't have to slide the book into your coat pocket or anything. Like, I don't want anybody to see this. But the other extreme is passivity, is being passive, to ignore what is popular and let something less than helpful or even heretical seep into the culture and the ministry of the church. We can't do that. And I've been down this road a few times, and here's what happens. A work becomes popular, and the word spreads because we're trying to encourage one another. Hey, I read this, and five more people order it. A popular work then becomes used, it starts to be used in five or six small groups. Then it becomes the most cherished work for half of the church, and all of a sudden, instead of pulling out a splinter, we're doing major surgery. So better to pull out the splinter. So how can you be discerning? Expect uninspired sources to be uninspired. Know that uninspired sources have varying degrees of usefulness. Know that uninspired sources can be a form of idolatry. Remember that sentiment is not study. And remember that your thoughts matter to God and responsible church leadership must keep an eye on what's popular. We have to. Well, toward that end, now that you're fully aware of some ways to be discerning, it's, it's my duty to bring up the hottest fad in Christendom. I want to be careful about categorizing good authors and bad authors. I just want you to read critically with an informed theology. But once in a while, something is so bad that we just have to bring it up. But you make your own decision. This book was written by a Reformed Presbyterian pastor and theologian. It's been a main resource used in countless churches in the recent months, especially in the days of COVID when everybody's needed a touch of kindness and hope. It's been endorsed by countless respected leaders in Christianity. At Grace Community Church in Sun Valley, John MacArthur's church, it was used as a major resource in their women's ministry just last year. It was recently the Gospel Coalition's Popular Theology Book of the Year. It is the Accessible Theology Book of the Year by World Magazine. It is the Book of the Year by the Association of Certified Biblical Counselors. I was even trying to figure out how I got a copy of it. I remembered it was handed out at Shepherd's Conference last year. And so with those endorsements alone, generally you're going to feel very confident. It's selling tons of copies currently. It is the number one Christian book on Amazon right now. It's a book with many redeeming qualities and which contains much that is true and right and lovely and yet it ventures into waters that are so speculative that it would fit the category of the lofty opinions that we saw in 2 Corinthians 10.5. And of course, that is the popular book, Gentle and Lowly, The Heart of Christ for Sinners and Sufferers by Dane Ortland. As of today on Amazon, out of thousands of reviews, it has a 93% five-star rating. The basic premise of the book is to explore the heart of Christ, and that's an absolutely noble effort. In the opening paragraph, it says, in the four gospel accounts given to us in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, 89 chapters of biblical text, there's only one place where Jesus tells us about his own heart. He goes on to explain, but in only one place, perhaps the most wonderful words ever uttered by human lips, do we hear Jesus himself open up to us his very heart Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart. And you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. He goes on to say, this is the one place in the Bible where the Son of God pulls back the veil and lets us peer way down into the core of who he is. He says, Jesus tells us what animates him most deeply, what is most true of him when he exposes the innermost recesses of his being, what we find there is gentle and lowly. Now, you might say, well, how are we going to argue with that? That's scripture. Absolutely. We would all agree with that. Our Lord and Savior is gentle and lowly. We know this because he said so. And we would definitely agree with Ortland when he says that this book and, and his emphasis is for Christians. We understand that. He rightly says this is not who he is to everyone indiscriminately. This is who he is for those who come to him, who take his yoke upon them, who cry to him for help. This statement and much else in the book is true. It's comforting. It's encouraging. But remember we said that uninspired sources have varying degrees of usefulness. I need to just highlight some cautions over this book. And these aren't minor concerns. These are concerns which strike at the very core of Christian orthodoxy 
at well-established biblical truth which would define our faith. This is not, uh, do you believe Christ is coming before or after the tribulation? This is, what is your view of God? It is at that level. I'm going to give you four concerns. One of them is just an introductory concern, more of an observation than the last three are are theological. Just an introductory concern. Legitimate, critical concerns about the book have been ostracized rather than answered. They've been ostracized rather than answered. Now, you may have read the most major uh, review recently posted on the Grace to You blog by Jeremiah Johnson with input, by the way, with a team of theologians about the book, and you can like the review or not, but he deals with content, and he asks some very legitimate questions. It's not my goal to recreate that review today. You can read it for yourself. I don't want to defend it or critique it, but you should read it because he does a good job. And it's not that, uh, that, that he wrote a bad review. There are ways to write bad reviews and ways to write good ones, and he fits the criteria of a good book review. But what's disturbing is that the response to that particular review and, and others like it have been uncareful, if I can use that word. In fact, one of the most prominent responses to this review, written with great care and study, I'm sure less than 24 hours later, came from Relevant Magazine. And it's a long review of the review. Their response to the review that Johnson gave was, it's contentious, it's hostile, it's uncharitable. But the entire response doesn't deal with any content whatsoever. It's basically just a big whiny, you hurt my feelings. But there's no response to content. This has been the case on social media as well. No problems with arguing the merits or concerns of an uninspired work but the Grace to You review stands on very solid theology and it's not being effectively challenged by those who are having a, a knee-jerk emotional reaction. That sort of response which doesn't deal with content, what does that tell you? It tells you that they're not able to deal with the content. It also is, if I can put it this way, a Christianized version of the cancel culture that says, I'm not going to deal with the content, I'm just going to whine and say, you hurt my feelings, therefore I don't like you anymore. This is not a debate around secondary issues. The problems with gentle and lowly strike at orthodox Christianity. So here's my second concern. We'll get into the theology now. The book represents, I'm sorry, let me say that better. The The book misrepresents, that's an important distinction. The book misrepresents the Bible's teaching on sin and sinful mankind. The book misrepresents the Bible's teaching on sin and sinful mankind. Here's what Ortland writes. Quote, if the actions of Jesus are reflective of who he most deeply is, we cannot avoid the conclusion that it is the very fallenness which he came to undo that is most irresistibly attractive to him. Translation, the fallenness of man attracted Christ to us. In case you think that was an oversight, he writes this, 45 pages later. It is not our loveliness that wins his love. It is our unloveliness. In other words, that wins his love. Major problems with this. He's saying that your sin and degradation was irresistibly attractive to Christ and that's what won his love for you. This completely undercuts the gospel. It undercuts the greatness of grace. Christ attracted your fallenness irresistibly? Are you kidding me? There's, this is nothing more than a rehashed sentimental view of God that says that God needs us and that salvation meets a need that he has. This is connecting the love of God as somehow being the result of mankind. The love of God is independent of us. We did not cause the love of God. God what? Is love. God is love and it's precisely the fact that we're utterly disgusting in our sin that makes the grace and the love of God so astounding. By the way, he he misrepresents the biblical gospel of man's need for salvation. He says, quote, the minimum bar to be enfolded into the embrace of Jesus is simply open yourself up to him. It is all he needs. It's not what the Bible says. Jesus preached in Mark 1.15, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Romans 5.8, God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Not because we were sinners and Christ was irresistibly attracted to our sin, Christ died for us. Now, this quote here, the minimum bar to be enfolded into the embrace of Jesus is simply open yourself up to him. It is all he needs. Someone might say, 
And, and I think Orland would say this fairly. Well, he was speaking of Christians being embraced by Christ when they're hurting. I've already been embraced by Christ. You know what Ephesians 1.3 tells me? Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. I've been in the embrace of Christ since the moment he saved me. The book misrepresents sin and sinful mankind. There's a third problem. The book misrepresents the Bible's teaching on Scripture itself. The book misrepresents the Bible's teaching on Scripture itself, bibliology. Again, this is the one place, quote, this is the one place in the Bible where the Son of God pulls back the veil and lets us peer way down into the core of who he is. Again, quote, Jesus tells us what animates him most deeply, what is most true of him when he exposes the innermost recesses of his being, what we find there is gentle and lowly. To say that Jesus tells us what animates him most deeply, the text doesn't say that. Jesus never said that. Now, Ortland does attempt to qualify these statements with other aspects of the Lord, but he couldn't be more clear in stating that this one verse is the most important one about Jesus. This is bordering dangerously on the line of Gnosticism, of some sort of secret knowledge that now Ortland has exposed us to. Of course, Christ is gentle and lowly. That characterizes his humanity. That characterizes the fact that he came to earth as a baby, that he came to earth like us, and he met us right where we are. Of course he's gentle and lowly. It characterizes his offer of salvation that he makes. That's the context, by the way. The context is not comforting Christians. The context is offering the unbeliever salvation. But he's presenting Christ as being most fully known, literally, in one verse of the Bible. He says elsewhere, quote, God is opening up to us his deepest heart. Okay, God doesn't have layers to be peeled back where the center is more important than the outside. That's not okay. We're not on a date with God where he finally really opens up to us. God is God, and he doesn't get divided into sections. Yes, he has attributes, but we would never say one is more important than the other. Why does this violate an orthodox understanding of bibliology, though? I want you to follow my logic. All Scripture reveals the person of God, right? We've already read this verse, 2 Timothy 3.16. All Scripture is breathed out by God. Therefore, all Scripture reveals the person of God. If all Scripture reveals the person of God, then all Scripture must reveal the heart of God the Father. Does that make sense? And if all scripture reveals the heart of God the Father, Jesus said in John 14, 9, whoever has seen me has seen the Father. Hebrews 1, 3, he, that is Christ, is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. If you have seen the Father in the scriptures, you have seen the Son. How about this argument? Jesus is so associated with the word of God that John's gospel calls him what? The word. John 1, 1, in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. 14, verse 14, the word became flesh and dwelt among us and we have seen his glory. Glory as of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. If you've seen Christ, you've seen the glory of God. We haven't seen Christ face to face, but we have a Bible in which we've seen Christ and how about this? Is Matthew eleven twenty nine the only place where Jesus reveals his true heart, his true self? He wouldn't say that. After his resurrection, Jesus was walking on the road to Emmaus with two disciples who didn't yet recognize him. They didn't understand that Jesus had died and was raised from the dead, and he rebuked them for not knowing Christ from the Old Testament scriptures. Luke twenty four and twenty five, twenty five and twenty six rather, he said to them. O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that Christ should suffer these things and enter into glory? So what did Jesus do for them to enlighten them as to his heart? Luke 24, 27. And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. 
Ortland's assertion that one verse tells us the deepest truths about Christ is disturbing, and it violates what the Bible teaches about the nature of Scripture as revealing God and Christ from Genesis to Revelation. It's just not true. One last problem. The book misrepresents the Bible's teaching on God and Christ. The book misrepresents the Bible's teaching on God and Christ, theology proper and Christology. Ortland writes, If Jesus hosted his own personal website, the prominent line of the About Me drop-down would read, Gentle and lowly in heart. He clearly states, I've already read other quotes, that this is the singular primary defining feature of Christ. This is the essence of his character. Listen, if anybody wants to write a book about the fact that Jesus is gentle and lowly, that's fabulous. That's tremendous. It is truth. It's great. But that's not what Ortland did. Instead, he wrote a book claiming to have found the chief or the principal attribute of Christ. Ortland does acknowledge briefly a fuller view of Christ that includes his other attributes, but you know how he does it? He says, quote, Jesus has a harsher side. What does that imply? It implies very strongly that this is the less desirable side of Jesus. That's a whole can of worms in and of itself. And when speaking of times in the Bible when Christ sends judgment, he says, quote, something recoils within him in sending that affliction. He is conflicted within himself when he sends affliction into our lives. Do you realize that he just claimed to know what is in the heart of God based on zero scripture? He says of God and Christ, it boggles my mind that anybody would say this. Mercy, quote, mercy is natural to him. Punishment is unnatural. This is extremely serious. It implies that God has a good side and a dark, his words, not mine, unnatural side. Listen very carefully. To say that God does things that are unnatural, what's the root word? Nature is to say that God does things that are against his nature, which is to say that God sins. That's not okay. 2 Timothy 2.13 says that God cannot deny himself. Ephesians 1.11 says that God works all things according to the counsel of his will. There is no dark side of God. These wild speculations about God are so out of bounds and unfortunately are going to mislead many who have found that now what they believe in is a therapeutic grandfather God. We don't need to make wild, baseless claims about Christ to somehow make him more palatable. Here he is. Colossians 1, 15. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross there's Christ I don't need to make stuff up I know this is hard I know a few of you are hiding gentle and lowly under your Bible right now and I understand that maybe you found parts of the book helpful be careful you don't idolize that without acknowledging the fact that the book misrepresents our Savior badly or maybe you're feeling badly that you didn't catch this at first. You're in very good company. Shepherds Conference, Associated, Association of Certified Biblical Counselors, countless churches, the Gospel Coalition, many others. Just in case you're still conflicted, and, and thank you for your patience, I just need to make sure we get this clear. I want to offer three potential objections to any worries about gentle and lowly. Maybe you're saying, I, I don't want to make this a big deal. Here's potential objections. The first one, It made me worship Christ more. The book made me worship Christ more. That may be an objection you have. I don't doubt that a focused thought process about our Lord has a a positive impact, but my question would be, did your worship of Christ increase toward Christ or toward a distorted view of Christ? Moses desired to know God better. He asked God in Exodus thirty-three eighteen, show me your glory. And how did God answer him? He answered him with truth. Exodus 34, the Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there. 
and proclaimed the name of the Lord. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, Yahweh, Yahweh, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and on the children's children to the third and the fourth generation. And Moses quickly bowed his head toward the earth and worshiped. Why? Because God told the truth of himself. A lie cannot, by definition, cause worship. It cannot cause worship. Jesus himself said that his people worship him in spirit and in what? Truth. Another objection. It's not all bad. It's not all bad. And that's true. Very few uninspired sources are. In 1945, an ancient book was discovered in Egypt called The Gospel of Thomas. And it's supposedly attributed to Thomas the Apostle. It contains 114 sayings that were supposedly said by Jesus himself. Now, the latest evidence has shown conclusively that it was written by a Gnostic, a Gnostic author in the second century, Gnosticism being that false religion that mixes so-called higher knowledge with Christianity, telling Christians, I've got something you don't have. And supposedly, the Gospel of Thomas contains some terrific information about Christ that only he knew. And in fact, to this day, the Gospel of Thomas continues to be an important source for figuring out what some call, quote, the historical Jesus. In other words, the real Jesus that the Gospels don't tell us about. What is that? That's a satanic means to get people to lose confidence in their Gospels. Very few uninspired sources are all bad, but does that mean you should consume them? Yes, our beloved friend Steve Lawson says, rightly of an uninspired source, chew the meat and spit out the bones. But when the whole foundation of a source is one giant bone, you ever order a cheap steak? You find out why they're cheap, right? There's one more objection you may have. It made me feel better and it encouraged me. It made me feel better and it encouraged me. I don't doubt the genuineness of that feeling. But we don't judge truth based on experience. We judge experience based on truth. Otherwise, our whole Christian life becomes one giant feeling. And if I feel better, it must be true. If I don't feel good, something must be wrong. A couple of decades ago, Dr. Jack Deere, a former professor at Dallas Theological Seminary, wrote a book called Surprised by the Power of the Spirit. It was a huge bestseller with some classic charismatic errors in it, denying, by the way, the sovereignty of God. He wrote a sequel called Surprised by the Voice of God. The Christians should be seeking to hear the voice of God outside of Scripture and that this is normal. And, and what? You're not hearing an audible voice of God? Well, there must be something wrong with you. And on the surface, those books make you feel wonderful. I read the first one and part of the second one, and they feel good. They make you believe that God can do miracles in your life and that God will speak in new ways to you. Well, in response to Surprised by the Voice of God... Dr. Richard Mayhew of the Master Seminary wrote a scholarly article called Alarmed by the Voice of Jack Deere. And he examined, quote, the logical validity, hermeneutical propriety, anecdotal proportions, exegetical precision, and theological persuasion of the book. And it's an outstanding article because it's airtight. And Mayhew makes the conclusion, Deere unfortunately attempts to make too much out of too little and thus fails to present a convincing case. Making too much out of too little, i.e. taking one verse of the Bible and building an entire false doctrine of Christology on that one verse. I read Surprised by the Power of the Spirit. If I didn't know better, it would have made me feel better. It would have encouraged me, but experience can't be the judge of truth. And yes, we want to know Christ more and more. Absolutely. We want to be like Paul who said in Philippians 3.10 that I may know him and the power of his resurrection, that I may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. Now, I don't want to just take something away and not put something in its place. So if you, if you like reading books, let me give you some recommendations that are much more useful, much more helpful and I, I actually brought them with me. And I'm going to leave them on the table down here if you want to look at them. Uneclipsing the Sun by Rick Holland. This is a tremendous theology of Christology and it's comforting as well. Understanding Christ. You have 
The Man, Christ Jesus by Dr. Bruce Ware. This is all about the humanity of Christ. And it's a, it's a wonderful work. You have also, if you want to study the deity of Christ and comforting as well, putting Jesus in his place, the case for the deity of Christ. We've had one person I know of in our church got saved reading this book. By Robert Bowman and Ed, I can't say his name, there's a lot of letters at the end. Putting Jesus in his place. My favorite out of all the ones I brought up today, Dr. Greg Harris has signed this pulpit. He's preached here before. The Cup and the Glory. Lessons on suffering and the glory of God and it's centered around the person of Christ. And these are theological masterpieces because they're not based on one verse. They're based on hundreds and hundreds of verses. I'll leave them down here for you. Now you might say, Steve, you're such a stick in the mud. Who cares? It's just a book. Once upon a time, there were some sheep in the pasture. And the sheep were enjoying the pasture. They were eating the wild grass and the natural plants that grew in the field. But some people came along to try to be helpful. And they planted flowers, beautiful flowers. They planted irises with their purple and yellow and white flowers. They planted morning glory These flowers with their stunning blue and white and red and purple and yellow flowers and the leaves are even heart-shaped. They planted irises and morning glory. They planted mountain laurels with their tiny bell-shaped clusters of pink and white flowers. It was so beautiful. Well, many of the sheep began eating the irises and the morning glory flowers and the mountain laurels. The, The flowers were so beautiful and after all, the regular grass that you just eat week after week is dull compared to this new variety of food. Well, the problem is is that the iris and the morning glory and the mountain laurels, while outwardly beautiful, are all poisonous to sheep. And sure enough, the sheep who kept eating these flowers stopped eating the grass. And they started staying away from the rest of the flock. They began to suffer from apathy and fatigue and even began acting confused. And they didn't know which way to go. Why? Because they were being slowly poisoned by these beautiful flowers. Critical, Critical thinking is good. It's healthy when taking in uninspired sources of information concerning biblical truths and ideas. But once you've discerned, continuing to eat of something that is unhealthy is like saying, but it only has a little cyanide in it. Yes, Jesus is gentle and lowly. Of course he is. He came to earth as a cell. And then was born as a baby. And then he was raised by sinful parents and yet he submitted to them. And then he grew up and he ministered for three and a half years with one set of clothes. He didn't own a home. He didn't own anything. He didn't own a car. He didn't have anything to his name. He picked 12 of the most difficult men you possibly could and said, you're going to save the world when you preach my name. He put children on his lap. He embraced the lepers. He touched all who were sick. He got down into the dirt and the grime of a world. He even paid taxes, and he didn't have to because he owns everything. And he willingly went to a cross so that he might offer as an equal a human being to a human being, so to speak, equal in terms of who he is, he might offer a one-to-one substitute sacrifice. Of course he's gentle and lowly. He had to be gentle and lowly in his humanity to come down to the filth and grime of where we are to take us by the hand. But the fact that he is gentle and lowly is an accurate and a glorious description of his first coming. When he is mounting the white horse, In Revelation 19, and he has on his robe and on his thigh the name King of Kings and Lord of Lords, and he has the blood of his enemies splattered on his robe, and he has a sword by which he will judge all of humanity, and he has the armies of heaven following him, and he comes to earth over a 30-day period according to the last chapter of the book of Daniel, and people can see him in the clouds coming, and people are hiding themselves under rocks and in canyons and in ravines. They say, hide us from the wrath of the Lamb. And when he comes and with a single word melts the flesh off of his enemies, 
That is Christ. And then to all who are his, he's always gentle and lowly after having melted the flesh off of all of his enemies. He says to us, well done, good and faithful servant, come into your reward. Would you stand with me? And let's turn to Revelation chapter one. We're gonna stand in honor of the King of Kings. We're gonna stand in honor of the Lord of Lords. Turn to Revelation one. Revelation one, beginning in verse 12. If you have an English Standard Version, which I'm reading from, I would like for you to read along with me, please. Let's read together. Verse 12 of Revelation 1. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me. And on turning, I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white, like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze, refined in a furnace. And his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand he held seven stars. From his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. And his face was like the sun shining in full strength. That's our Savior. Amen. Let's pray. Our Father, we stand in awe of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Oh, we praise you and thank you that he came gentle and lowly. He sunk to the mire of a sinful earth. That you made him who knew no sin to become sin on our behalf that we might become the righteousness of God in Christ. We praise you that our Savior is our friend. He is our greatest comfort. He is our elder brother. But we never remember him just as that lowly savior. He's not merely gentle and lowly. He is the king of kings, the Lord of lords, who will destroy all who come before him and dare to raise their hand against God. And he is the one who will establish a kingdom so glorious, so magnificent, with a New Jerusalem coming down out of heaven on whose throne he will gloriously sit. We thank you and praise you in the name of Jesus, our Savior, the King of kings and Lord of lords. Amen.